show with two retired detectives that were in the thick of New York crime, fast and hectic. They got some stories and some jokes, even an interview with the most popular folks. Off the cuff, off the cuff, one episode just ain't enough. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon. I'm a retired 27-year veteran of the NYPD. We got like an amazing show tonight. We actually just threw it together because we thought it would just be an interesting thing to talk about, a a human interest story, sort of, you know, two guys that uh, grew up in different parts of Brooklyn, and instead of uh, giving in to the temptations of the street, they both became New York City detectives. And to me, that's a hell of an interesting story. And all you got, you got the veal parmesan heroes. You got the shrimp parmesan. You got walking the streets. You got being a tough guy, get involved in boxing. You got all this stuff and growing up. And uh, it's going to be interesting as all hell. So you should be glad you tuned in tonight. And uh, with me to my, to my right, actually, well, to my left really, is Tommy Dades, retired first grade detective, boxer, author, renaissance man and from brooklyn how you doing tonight tommy i'm doing good there bill thank you it's so great to have you on the show you know it's funny yeah. i joke about it i've known tommy i, I don't know about, about six or eight months and i've never met him the only time i've ever met him is on the show but i feel like i met him i feel like we've been buddies for my whole life you know but it's sure. so it's sort of funny we gotta we're gonna have dinner together very soon oh, and of course my co-host straight out of brooklyn his hair is perfect Okay, he's from that that song, Werewolves of London. His hair was perfect, you know. It's Phil Grimaldi. How you doing tonight, Phil? I'm doing pretty good, Billy. Thank you for having me back. We were actually supposed to be having dinner tonight, you, Tommy, and I, but I've been struggling with uh, COVID for the last, like, 10 days or so, almost two weeks. I went for, like, two or three tests. The third one came back positive finally, but I'm actually over the contagious part. I'm just going to play it safe for another day or two. And uh, thank you for all the uh, subscribers, all the well wishes from everybody. Duty Ron, Eddie Wallace got in touch with me. I got in touch with them because they're both going through it as well, their families. So God bless everybody. And uh, it's just a pleasure to have Tommy back. Uh, Obviously, uh, another Brooklyn native, and I feel very comfortable. It's my man, Tommy. So uh, let's get to it. You know, I just want to shout out before uh, we go to it, uh, uh, to Lorraine, uh, Factual Breakdown who apparently also has caught COVID. This is a, uh, this Omicron thing is like out of control. And then, you know, as we said, and I talked about it on Coffee with Cannon during the day, we're all going to get it. No one's going to escape this thing. We're all going to get it. It's just, it's when you get it, how severe or less severe it is, you know. But all you folks out there that contracted COVID, your family members, we're all praying for you, everyone to get better quickly and to, you know, yeah, I took two tests for it this week because I was feeling a little under the weather. I was um, negative both times, thank God. But uh, as you, you know, said, Billy, Phil. Billy, let me just interject something. When when uh, I went for my third test, uh, I went with my daughter, 
and because she had symptoms as well. And when the doctor came in, this really relates to what you did, the point you just make. When he came into the room with the two tests in his hand, the rapid test, and he had him in his hand, he looked down, he goes, oh, congratulations. So I thought it was two negatives. I said, all right, because I originally was being treated for just bronchitis. And he goes, congratulations. I says, oh, negative? He goes, no, both positive. I says, what do you mean congratulations? Uh, he's like, no, no. He goes, trust me. He goes, it's just going to be like a cold uh, you can hear, I'm still a little nasally. He said, uh, it's better that you got it now. You got it over it. You had it the first time. It's behind you. I just got over it. So I think that uh, it sounds like the whole thing is weakening. Uh, again, you don't want anybody to get sick at all. But if herd immunity becomes the way that we get rid of this thing over time, God bless. And uh, let's just get rid of it. Supposedly, the, uh, the one that I had, the Omicron, the new one, uh, didn't kill anybody yet in the, in the U.S. It killed one person, I believe, but they had some uh, comorbidities going on and uh, underlying conditions or whatever. So uh, let's just hope that we could get through this. I don't know one person that it hasn't even touched them or someone very close to them in the last couple of weeks. It's amazing. It seems like the whole world is sick at once, but we're going to get through it. We'll be fine. 100%. All right, let's uh, get get away from the COVID thing. Let's yes. start talking about Brooklyn. Let's talk because you guys are two Brooklynites. And uh, I pulled up a few photos of some of the uh, – I don't want you guys crying when you see this. You see uh, the Brooklyn Bridge with the old World Trade Center there. And I could have pulled up the a picture of it with the new, but we like to see the old World Trade Center. I mean, that was the World Trade Center. I don't know. The new building doesn't do anything for me. You know, I, I don't know if you guys feel the same way. hundred percent, Billy. I, I, I always said from day one – we should not allow anyone in the world to change our landscape forever. They did. I feel it was very unfortunate. The politicians got involved in the rebuilding of uh, of the World Trade Center. I think it's a beautiful building. Don't get me wrong. But uh, it should have went back even if the buildings had to remain empty just the way it was. I feel like they won a victory by changing our landscape. But that's a story for another day. Tom, you know, it's fun. Go ahead, Tommy. Tommy. I'm sorry. You got any opinion on that, Tom? The, uh... I had my foot post for like six months when I worked in the first precinct. And uh, when I got down there that day, it was, I didn't even know where I was because yeah. you don't realize how, what a, you know, a landmark that is, you know, to see where you are. I didn't even know where I was. I was standing on Liberty Church and had no, like, just didn't understand where the hell I was. Yeah. Well, let's get a little positive. We got that Brooklyn Bridge. That's a that's a positive thing. That's still standing, thank God. And that leads right to where me and Tommy come from. <laughs> <laughs> you know, let's, uh, Tommy, let's start with you. Wh wh where'd you grow up, Tommy? Sunset Park, Brooklyn. And tell us a little bit about Sunset Park. What was it like growing up there? Uh, Sunset Park uh, was, it was diversified, predominantly Spanish. After you crossed over Sixth Avenue, um, it was there was all, all kinds of nationalities there. Uh, I grew up on 47th Street and Eighth Avenue. Uh, there were bars from 39th Street to 60th Street. Probably more on that strip on Eighth Avenue than anywhere else in Brooklyn. And uh, they were just like you know pool table, you know bucket of blood type of bars. You know what I mean? A shot in a bucket of blood. I mean. It was a, a, <laughs> was a shot a dollar a shot a quarter of beer you know not but, too many strangers uh, walking in those places right Tom? No, no if you walked in place some of those bars and you didn't know the people that were in there you had a problem but uh i had a lot of fun there and i felt very comfortable you know no matter where you were 
if you went back up to that corner, all your friends were up there all hours of the night. You know, we had the Johnny Pump going at three in the morning in the summer. We'd have a couch outside. We'd have the jukebox going in the bar with the doors open so we could hear the music. Uh, it was a lot. It really was. It was a lot of fun. You know, I wouldn't I wouldn't change that for anything. I had a great time. So you're saying sort of like the neighborhood protected people that were from the neighborhood. And when they you got back to your own environment, no matter where you were, you just felt safe, you know. And most of us came from broken homes, so we were always out, you know. And uh, at that time, back in those days, you were 15 years old, you were sitting at the bar, you know. Uh, we just had a lot of fun, you know. The, the bar attendants, some of them had uh, beautiful cars. We were, Going to tell us go pick up Danishes and coffee two o'clock in the morning. We're fifteen years old, driving the cars, no driver's license, no nothing. You know, <laughs> it was just a lot. It was just a different time. You know, where different. did you go for the Danish time? Probably Sixty Fifth Street and uh, and what is it Seventh? The the diner in the Six Eight. Oh yes, yes, yes. I forget yeah, what was the name of it again. No, it escapes I forget, me. I forget the name of the diner. Yeah, but it just closed recently too. That's where we used to go all the time. Yeah, it was a good diner, too. You know, I remember when Larry Mazza was on the show, and uh, Larry Mazza, of course, was uh, worked with the Grim Reaper, uh, Greg Scarpa, and he he told his whole story there. But he said he saw you when you were very young, and, and you were the youngest guy he ever saw with a tattoo. Yeah, that was, a, that was a, another long story. He used to go to Tony's on Albany and Leopards. Uh-huh. And he tattoo for like twenty dollars, you know. And I was like thirteen or fourteen when I got my first tattoo. It was uh, <laughs> My mother wanted to cut my arm off. <laughs> hey, <laughs> that's great, though. Uh, I mean, he he remembered that about you, you know, which was uh, Tasmanian devil. <laughs> that's right. That's right. It was the Tasmanian devil. You know, I just wanted to to say how. You know, both of you guys, you grew up on these these tough streets of Brooklyn, and the temptations were there. You could either go to the wrong side, you know, pick door number one, and, uh, you know, it's it's the wise guy's side. Door number two is the NYPD. And you guys both chose to come on the NYPD. And do you credit that also with keeping you out of trouble in your later years? You know, you still can get in a lot of trouble in your 20s, that's for sure. And But you guys both chose to go on the NYPD. What do you feel about that, Philly? Well, my uh, my background, my history, my family comes from Coney Island. I'm third generation into uh, into Brooklyn. I grew up in Gravesend. That's uh, my graduation from the police academy. Uh, that's my dad. Uh, I look uh, kind of young in that picture. Uh, I was keeping a mustache at that time just to try and look a little older because I really had a baby face. But but I come third generation from Coney Island, and I think you know my grandfather came out of uh, came to Italy uh, came from Italy. Went into World War One. Uh, met my grandmother. He was only here six months. Boom, right into into the army in World War One. Then, um, uh, you know, they they really struggled through uh, some tough times with eight kids. And I think they really got the idea of the American dream by working hard, building a big family. And then my uh, my parents met. My father was in World War Two. Uh, after he came home, uh, they met. And uh, so I have a a, a family that. You know, they they were in the military. They were service people. All of my uncles were in the military. So my calling was the NYPD. I was very lucky because of my family and I had older friends. They always kind of kept me out of trouble. Trouble was uh, was around a lot me uh, a lot with me growing up. Uh, there were times when I almost. 
you know, uh, got into a stolen car that was running left by the schoolyard one day and somebody grabbed me by the collar. Sure enough, here came anti-crime. What are you guys doing by this car? Had I gotten in that car, I probably would have gotten collared. Might not have uh, had that beautiful rack of metals that uh, you were just showing. <laughs> but, uh, oh, thank God it, it, it worked out good. It worked out really good for me. Uh, yeah, you know, I think uh, because, like I was saying, third generation, all the all the – the people that were older, they, they, uh, they went through the mill a little bit. My neighborhood, there was some heavyweight, uh, heavy duty characters. I'm going to throw one name out there that Tommy will know. Tommy Patera, AKA Tommy Karate, uh, a madman, serial killer, known organized crime guy. Uh, I had, uh, people that I knew friends of mine that actually dealt drugs for him. So I could have very easily be, been pulled in that direction. I just had an influence from uh, a strong family influence. I have an older brother that's three years older than me, always was knocking me around anytime that I had, uh, you know, uh, stepping out of line a little bit. My big brother, Big Nick, he's uh, six, two and a half, and uh, he had a wallop of a punch, so he kept me in line. But uh, again, my father, my uncles, I had an uncle that owned a junkyard in Coney Island. So they knew the streets, I think is what I'm trying to say. And they they kind of uh, steered me and my brother and, and my sister in the right direction. And uh, we all turned out pretty good, you know. Uh, I got a great education from the street, though, because I did work on Avenue U and Asylum Marie, and I was around a lot of wise guys. So I got a good education. I got a good knowledge. I could throw a lot of names out there. Frankie Lino, Eddie Lino, Bobby Lino, Nikki Black. Uh, I was there today uh, working on the job when he was gunned down in the street. Uh, just so many different people. So I saw it all. Uh, I was close to it, but I uh, I was obviously, I made a right instead of a left, and I, I went down the right path, thank God. Billy, let me just shout out to uh, folks. Thank you so much. This is uh, one of our, well, tomorrow night will be our last show of 2021. It's been an exciting year for police off the cuff, real crime stories. We sort of split it. My partner, Mark DeMeo, was doing police off the cuff after hours. And I sort of hooked up with Phil and doing a real crime stories. And I did that like halfway into the year. And it's been very successful. So uh, that's what I'm doing. And I'm so happy a lot of, a lot of you guys joined the police off the cuff uh, YouTube family uh, and also our Patreon family helped to support us, help us to keep going every day. And I just want to shout out to all you folks that are members of our YouTube. The Pranzos has been, have been with us from the beginning, Lieutenant Pete and his wife, Chella. Thank you so much for all you do for us. Uh, Stephen Revo Gates, I've seen you in, in, uh, see you in the chat a lot. Uh, Margaret Hearn, Nikki Bella, all you folks in the green font, Kathy Bates, Single Mama 4. I appreciate you guys. If you're not subscribed to us, please go on our YouTube, hit the subscribe button, ring that bell, give us a thumbs up. Uh, we could use, uh, going into 2022, we could use all the followers we can get. And we got some exciting stuff, some exciting guests going on. What, what, enough promotion. Let me get back to these two Brooklynites. And Tommy Dades, um, if you guys don't know, he has one of the most exciting uh, stories that really hasn't totally been told. And if you haven't seen this book, it's called... Uh, Friends of the Family, and it's the inside story of the Mafia Cops case. And the Mafia Cops, uh, from left to right, it's um, Stephen Caracappa, the guy in the upper uh, on this book, uh, on the left, and to the right is Louis Ippolito. And these guys were actually doing hits for the mob. And Tommy Dades and a whole crew of uh, other investigators from the Brooklyn DA's office, as well as the FBI, built a case against these two guys. And they actually both got to retire from the NYPD 
and while they were both living out in Arizona, they were arrested. And Tommy can Tommy can tell you more about this story, but it's a fascinating story. Tommy, you want to comment on that? I mean, it was a it was a very good case. Uh, it there was a lot of people that were very instrumental in making that case, you know, materialize. Um, it wasn't a corruption. It didn't start off as any kind of corruption case. It was a. It fell into a you know an organized crime case, and they just fell. They fell into it, and uh, they were. There were fourteen murders that were proven that they uh, were involved in in one way or another. Um, they actually were were there and pulled the trigger. They pulled the trigger on one. They were there and kidnapped another guy where Louis's uh, cousin pulled the trigger. And uh, the rest, they gave guys up, gave information who was informants, ran guys' names for them to go after. They compromised wires, bugs. I mean, whatever, whatever they had to do, they did, you know? And... Uh, they really skated for a very long time. They were living out in Vegas, and DEA got involved in Vegas, monitoring them. And while the investigation was going on in New York, Joe Ponzi, the chief of Brooklyn DA's office, uh, played a very significant part in uh, flipping Burke Kaplan. Um, Frank Drew from the DEA is the one who arrested Burke Kaplan to get him in a position to flip. Uh, Mike Vecchione was the original prosecutor in the state. It ended up going federally, which was better off because you were able to, instead of facing 25 for life, you were facing life upon Tom, Tommy, could I just stop you for one second, please? Um, oh, and Diddy Gabby Cabby, thank you for the $5 super chat. Thank you so much for joining us. Tommy, I wanted to say this case was probably the biggest corruption case in the history of the NYPD, because it involved murders. It really it involved murders, which is the there's no higher crime than a murder yet it didn't get the publicity that other corruption cases have gotten you know michael dowd probably got more uh press than the, than the mafia cops but this was probably the worst corruption case in the nypd ten times history worse. 10 times worse yeah oh it was uh it was a long they they got they did things for a very long time um you know there was there was just no way to actually at the time to nail them when it's when way before I got involved, you know, people were aware of what they were doing and tried, but they didn't have they they didn't have the, the right evidence to, to move forward. But uh Betty Heidel, one of the victims uh mothers, is the one who really jump started and actually testified against them in court and put them at the scene of mistakenly trying to grab one son. And they ended up grabbing the wrong son. And that same day, that other son was, was uh, grabbed. And uh, well, Tommy, tell tell everyone also how the uh, misinformation provided by Stephen Caracappa to the mob wound up with the murder of a totally innocent, what, 21, 22 year old kid. Well, what happened was uh, there was a printout that he did. He ran a, a group search on the name of Nicky Guido. Nicky Guido, the real Nicky Guido was part of a murder conspiracy to kill Gaspar Queso. There was a hit team of four guys. And uh, they got those names from torturing Jimmy Heidel when they kidnapped him. 
And uh, that's how he knew the other three people that were involved. So Kara Kappa did a group search because Nikki Guido supposedly came from downtown Brooklyn, roundabout age, whatever the looks were. And uh, the, re the real Nikki Guidos was listed. There were only eight Nikki Guidos at the time listed in New York State. The real Nikki Guido's address was upstate New York. So they found one like Prospect Heights, you know, like around there. Um, and it's only like half a mile away from going downtown Brooklyn. So they, they thought that was the guy. And they happened to both drove red cars. And on Christmas Day, the wrong Nicky Guido was showing his uncle his car. And uh, there were three people from the Lucchese family uh, there. And uh, one of them shot Nicky Guido like five or six times and uh, killed him. And that was the wrong Nicky Guido. So an innocent person was murdered because of the information they provided to Peso. That's unbelievable. Billy, I got a question for you, Billy. I got a question that's really directed towards Tommy because he's, he's being very modest when he tells the story. And I think this might bring out a good point to show how big of a corruption case this really was. Bill, how many people from the NYPD do you know were interviewed on 60 Minutes? I don't know anybody other than Tommy Tommy Dage right there. Tommy Dage you know is the only one I nah, he's the only one I know. Yeah. You know? And, and and they actually ran the story three different times. They did three different episodes. Am I correct, Tom? Yeah. 60 Minutes did three episodes. So, I mean, th that gives you the magnitude of just how big this corruption case was. They were contract murderers for organized crime. And for whatever reason, one reason or another, I guess maybe the, the police department, the city didn't want bad press, bad publicity, but uh, it fell into Tommy's lap, Joe's lap, Mike Vecchione's lap, and they did what they had to do. And they put away three, uh, two very bad guys. And, uh, you know, they, they, they cleared a lot of murders. Bite me. Thank you for the $20 super chat. Happy new year to you also. Thank you so much for your support. Um, yeah. One of the things about this case too, which I found so egregious too, and I had read this book, this was the book of, uh, Louis Ippolito, which is just pure bullshit. If you read this book, he really sort of just glorifies mob guys. Meanwhile, he's the detective. He made, he, he made the mob look like it was the higher level of, uh, integrity and justice and you know la cosa nostra you know and made the police department look like oh the police department was meanwhile he's a dirty cop and well, he's the book that nailed him because he went on a sally jesse raphael show and betty Heidel was watching it and she she uh pinned him out as being the guy by a house that, that that's book. right that's how she picked him out because he was on he, he you know he's he was believing and she id both of them yeah, he was believing his own press, and he was just uh, promoting his own stuff, right? And that wound up to be partly his demise, right? Yeah, no, he got jammed up uh, in 1984 for uh, being allegedly, uh, he was alleged to have passed information to Rosario Gambino, where his fingerprints were found on paperwork when he did a warrant on Rosario Gambino's house. And... Uh, Whatever charges there were, he beat it at the trial room. But if you look through that folder, you know, that IED folder, and I showed you a folder, I'm not going to mention his name. It was a dear friend of mine who did lose his job. Um, 
and you looked at both those folders and I asked you who should have got convicted and who should have been declared innocent, uh, the folder was overwhelming evidence against Polito that he did supply that information to right. uh, I know who you're talking about, Tommy, 100% on that. I know exactly what you're talking about. Tom, I just want to back up a little bit. So basically, the book is what got him to be on Sally Jesse Raphael. And who was it at that spotted him? And that sort of helped the case? Was that Betty Heidel? So, so Betty Heidel, who was uh, the mother of one of the victims, because he has the book and goes on Sally Jesse at Raphael, she remembers that he was there the day that her son was, uh, that they were looking for her son. And she opens it up and sees a picture of both Louie and, and, and Cara Kappa. And she, that's them. It, it, isn't that ironic? That friggin' book that he was bragging about himself as being whatever turns to come back and bite him on the ass. Good yep. for that. Because, no, you know, listen, they brought disgrace to our job, to our shield. And uh, I don't think there's anything worse than what those two animals did. So. I'll just leave it at that. It you know, people me. have people have asked me and uh, asked us if we would have uh, Michael Dowd on on our show, and I never asked him because I wouldn't want to have him on the show because I find find that his behavior really affected us when we were on the job because he was such a dirty, dirty cop to to even think that a cop could do the things that he did. When I watched that uh, documentary, The Seven Five. I couldn't even believe how disgusting that was, the things that he did, you know. And then when you compare Ippolito and Caracappa, they were bigger scumbags. They, they were like, they were committing murders, you know. And when you think Killing about innocent that, people, that poor kid, uh, Nicky Guido. I mean, yeah. Christmas Day, he's showing off his brand new car and he catches five bullets, nearly kills his uncle that he's showing the car to. I mean, that yeah. alone. And that was really, go ahead, Tom jumped in front of his uncle to save him. He jumped, I mean, the kid was like a hero. And now, and, and that really became intricate in flipping Burton Kaplan, which kind of made the whole case, you know, fall into place. Correct, Tom? It, according to Joe Ponzi, uh, that was something that he didn't really care about the other people who got killed because they were all involved in whatever they were involved in. But the kid, Nicky Guido, the wrong Nicky Guido got killed. It, I, it was weighing on his conscience because he was an innocent victim. He had nothing to do with anything. He just got caught in the middle of something. He should never got caught. And I remember looking at the printout when I found it. And I was praying to God that it was the wrong birthday of the real Nicky Guido. And it was. That was the, 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 that was a printout that he used his tax number and his name to run at a major case. You know, um, so, so you, you, it was attached. He, he, he was in that two weeks before Nikki Guido, the wrong. Who, who's, he, who's he, Tom? Who are you saying he? Uh, Caracap. Okay. You know, Tommy, one of the things, and I mean, I, I, this is an amazing story, and I'd like to do a full episode just on this case because we're just scratching the surface of it. And I know that down the road, someone's going to make a movie of this or, uh, you know, a TV series. I know that it was already uh, that was already planned, and it fell through. And but uh, someone's. I mean, it's a, such a great, great story. You that- know, there's so many spinoffs to this story. Um, you know, there's so many people involved that did a great job, uh, a lot of hard work, and uh, it's just 
it's it's just I think there's so much that went on. The like one story goes into another story that goes into another story, and it, it's so hard for anybody to really grasp unless you were intimately involved in all of it, you know. And there's a piece of a puzzle that everybody brings to the table. So many people bring to the table. You know, it's just amazing how the stars were aligned with it, you know, uh, between the DEA, you know, the U.S. Attorney's Office, the Brooklyn DA's office, you know, really did an amazing job. Really but I think, I, think you're, I think you're minimizing it, Tommy. I think it's a great, great story, and it's a great, great case. And you can – I know you want to give credit to everyone, but if this was me, I would say Cannon, the series. <laughs> <laughs> Big guns cannon. He's coming to get you. This is what I'm pitching to the TV stations. Cannon, the series. And we'll talk about what the story is later. (laughs) You you know, Tom, you're really, I mean, you're you're doing a justice shouting out to everybody. But I think the fact that this case stretched over like over 20 years, correct? I mean, from the time we know about their criminal behavior, I mean. We know that they were partners in the robbery squad in 1979. Um, we know by a conversation that, uh, Burt Kaplan had with Louis Apolito's cousin, and I believe it was 1983 in prison that the cousin told Kaplan, the cousin told Kaplan, my cousin would do anything that you need. So it kind of establishes that he was already doing some crazy stuff. Now, now Tommy, Louis Apolito's cousin was a made guy, right? That wasn't clear. Yeah, Oh, he wasn't. I thought he was a made guy. According to the book, he was a made guy. No, he wasn't a made guy. He wasn't a made guy. He was an associate of Lucchese Crime Brand. And uh, he had mentioned to Kaplan, like, any anything you need. So the one thing we never found out was how Louis and, uh, how Louis and, and Steve, uh, how they became, you know, involved together in such crazy stuff where they trusted each other. I, you know, that's never been, ever been the only people who knew that, I guess they took it to the grave with them. But prior to 1983, you know they're doing bad stuff. We don't know what they were doing. After 83, when Kaplan gets out of jail, um, that's when, you know, it all begins. And uh, it's, it's all got to do with the shooting of Queso it starts it off, but Kaplan already used him in a, in a murder where he, they grabbed this guy Greenwald off the highway and uh, they actually bring him to a, a garage on Nostrand Avenue and that body was recovered and the owner of that garage, you know, cooperated when he was approached and that was one loose, one loose thing they left behind because they left behind the guy who witnessed, you know, mm-hmm. Louis' cousin killed a guy with them there playing chicky, and they ripped him off the highway, brought him to that to his death, and that guy gave up, you know, exactly where the body was, and they buried him, you know, in the in the garage. But Louis and Steve didn't know where the body was buried because they left right after he was killed. But Tommy, this is also another big um, sort of like eyesore or pain for uh, NYPD internal affairs because all these big I cases. I never notified. Them. No, no, but I'm just saying is that they never knew about these guys, uh, which shows, you know, sort of incompetence. They also never knew about Dowd. Dowd was arrested by the Suffolk County Department. So it's sort of. Oh, uh, oh, ma- 
IAD was on to Dowd. Uh, there, I, Joe Hall was on to Dowd before anybody was on to Dowd. There, there, was, the, there was also the sergeant that worked in the 6-1 squad. Uh, I FIAU sergeant. What was Good guy. Good guy. Know, he was nice. on him, but he, he was working by himself. Oh, geez, I can't believe I can't think of his name, but he was working on Dowd by himself. Yeah, he, was. he was. on demand, and he was very close to uh, – making a collar on it, and he informed, I believe, what was it, Suffolk County eventually arrested him. DEA was also involved in everything. Yeah. They pulled the carpet out from under him. I can't think of his name. Not Towel. He had a, he was a nice guy. guy. I good, remember. good, good guy. Good, good guy. But but again, uh, bringing up Dowd. Now, Dowd was a real piece of garbage, and Billy, you said you'd never want to interview him. I agree with you. Just one quick story about what he did in that seven five when uh, they responded to a burglary and the woman was at work and she was a single parent and her daughter, maybe 11, 12 years old, you know, goes in, sees the apartment has been ransacked, runs out, calls the police. They go in, there's nobody in there. And they make the kid call the mother and say, where did you have the money? He'd want to, want to check if it's still there. She had like a, a couple of thousand dollars in a shoebox up in a closet. The, the mother tells the kid on the phone. She tells the cops they steal the woman's money, a single parent. That to me was like, you know, robbing from drunk dealers is bad enough, but a single parent, they had, a, they had to steal a couple of thousand dollars from a woman living in, in a, in a ghetto in a bad area trying to make it. So to me, those guys are low lives. I actually went to the Academy with a guy, one of the guys that was involved in that. I liked the guy. He was a good guy. He just uh, wound up in a bad situation, I guess. And, but uh, Phil, you know, what was the worst thing for me with Dowd was the, when the transit cop Venable, I think his name was Robert Venable. I could be wrong about the first name. He was killed in a shootout in the seven five by the same drug dealers that Dowd was doing business with. And Dowd on in the a documentary the seven five was like, I grabbed him in my arms and I threw him into I was like, dude, you cannot be a cop now. You're a dirty piece of shit. Don't tell us how you took the the, the cop that was dying and threw him in your radio car and rushed him to the hospital because you already traded your soul. It's too late. You cannot be absolved. You cannot, the Lord isn't going to come and absolve you of your sins, you know? Absolutely, Billy. And when you think about it now, just think about the couple of things we just said about Dowd. These guys were that much worse because they were killing people, whether they were organized crime people, you could say people that might have been, in, you know, dirty or they deserved it. And then they were killing innocent people. And then the thing that really bothers me is I honored that badge that's over my shoulder, I honored that. To me, there was nothing more in the world that I wanted when I became a cop than that badge. And these guys tarnished it. They dirtied it. And it's something to tarnish it will never go away from that. To think that NYPD detectives, that there's only a class of few people that are on the job that get to be those detectives that we all shared in being in the detective bureau. It's not everybody. It's a percentage of the police department that makes it into the detective bureau and does this kind of work. And now you got these two guys that sold their badges for money and killed people. I mean, to me, there's nothing worse. Just not a funny story, but uh, while we were doing that case, um, Epolito mentions uh, uh, Chief Nicastro uh, that, you know, he put his finger in his chest and, you know, this whole bullshit story. And I, I knew that that wasn't true. Um, and I called Chief Nicastro. And uh, when I called him, he would not talk to me unless I had somebody three stars or above vouch for me which I got and I called him back and he was a total gentleman on the phone. Um, 
And the first question he asked me is, I hope you call me to tell him you're going to put handcuffs on that fat bastard. And that was that was his exact words to me, you know. That's so, great. And That's... Lou Giappolito makes like, you know, he bulldozed Nicastro around. And I know for a fact that, that wasn't true, you know. Yeah. Well, it's never true when you when a, someone like a, a five, six ranks below is saying they're bulldozing a boss that's not happening on the police department. You know, that's totally like, oh, I told this chief, I told you. All he has to do is say, dude, step out of my office. The rough and tumble guy in the cash show. You know, I remember when I was a rookie. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah, but what these guys did, Tom, uh, for whatever reason, uh, it didn't make it to the big screen yet. And as you know, with the... Uh, uh, Donnie Brasco with Joe Pistone took a lot of years. I'm sure that this story will be told sometime soon. And um, I, I just can't believe that maybe because it's just such a, a complicated and long story. Maybe that's the reason that it, it, you know, it never makes it over the hurdles, but Philly, I think they're just waiting for you and I to be ready to play some of the top detective roles in this movie. Right. Once they know we're ready, <laughs> police off the cuff is, is kicking ass. They're going to give us a call. <laughs> I'm ready. Wait, weren't you guys on The Perfect Murder? Yeah. yeah. Come on. Come in for an audition. <laughs> yeah. You, you know what? Since we're talking about uh, success stories from Brooklyn, which I think we really are success stories based on where we came from, I really always shout out to two people. My mother, who was a tough woman, and I, I talked about it when we – did a little tribute to her last week on the date anniversary of when she passed. And my uncle Frank Tomasino, who was a uh, cop in the, uh, in the sixties and seventies. And uh, he used to come to my house when I was a kid and uh, he would take his gun out and unload it and show us his gun and stuff. I, I mentioned him before, but though I would be remiss if I didn't mention those two people that they were big influences on what, put me on the right track in life. And uh, I mentioned my big brother, Nick, and he texted me that a little while ago. He's like, don't forget mommy. She was tough. <laughs> and was afraid of her. My, my, my mother was really, you know, she was a single parent. I, I My parents split up when I was about 11. My brother's a little older than me, but uh, she took over as mom and dad for uh, quite a few years and keeping an eye on us. And uh, we had good relatives. So that's, that's really what kept me on the, uh, you know, kept me grounded, kept me on the straight and narrow and uh, sent me into the right direction. And Tommy, uh, look at the uh, picture on the screen right now. Want to tell yeah, us who was in uh, that picture? That's Mike Vecchione that my arms around. He was the chief. Uh, he was the chief of uh, trials. He was the chief of the homicide bureau, and I worked for him as when he was the chief of uh, the Rackets bureau. We've done many, many cases together. Great trial attorney, probably the best one Brooklyn DA's office ever had. Standing next to me on the other side is Joe Ponzi, uh, who started out at the DA's office as an investigator and put in 37 and a half years and ended up the chief investigator of the DA's office. Joe is a class act and Joe's instrumental in why the mob cop case went. Standing next to Joe is Arthur Idala, who worked in the Brooklyn DA's office. We did a, a homicide case together, a high profile case in the 6-8. And Arthur was one of the attorneys and did an amazing job. And Arthur now is in private practice. Uh, and you see him all the time. He used to be a commentator on Fox 5 News. And he does so many high-profile cases now. I mean, everybody knows who he is. So it was a great team of guys, great bunch and, of guys. And uh, Tommy, you still have this suit in uh, Part B. Does it fit? Does it fit anymore? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I love I love seeing old suits. I don't know what happened to that suit. There's no way I'll fit in that anymore. You know. <laughs> hey, 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 Bill, could you put that picture of Tommy and Mike and everybody back up for a second? I just want to point something out. Sure, sure. Now, well, two things really. One, that's four more Brooklyn success stories right there. Mike, Tommy, Joe, and Arthur. Obviously, uh, Tommy said who they were. Everybody knows who they are. Joe's going through a little bit of a rough patch right now. He's uh, recovering from, uh, he had some issues, health issues, but he's doing well. Prayers for him. Audie Idala, he's right now just in the news recently uh, representing uh, Lawrence Taylor. He's always in a high profile case. Great guy, Brooklyn guy, Bay Ridge native. Joe's from Brooklyn. And Mike Vecchione, who we've had on the show, uh, author of, I believe, three books, working on his fourth, I think, Tom. Is that yeah, correct? Something not, like that. And uh, another great uh, guy from Brooklyn as well. And uh, and in I, I don't know if you guys could see it, but the World Trade Center is in the background in that picture. Is that correct, Tom? Yeah. I mean, the, that picture, you can't see it. The picture that I have, they're very clear. That's uh -huh. right outside 1PP. So you see both Twin Towers. I believe that's March 26th of... 2001 so it's a couple of months before it happened tom why don't you tell us now that's the day you got first grade right you promoted to first grade that day there's uh -huh. a little quick story that i thought was pretty uh pretty amusing maybe you want to tell us about that when you got notified well, well we had uh the team you know that was working on intel there were i have two partners dear friends uh jimmy hawkins michael letta uh and um it was me jimmy hawkins michael letta and lieutenant o'brien in that one team in the intelligence division. And uh, Jimmy and uh, Mike got promoted to second, you know, as we were leaving, got promoted to second grade, came down on the computer teletype, and, uh, you know, I congratulated them. And I was on the boxing team, and I remember I was in the ring sparring that night. And uh, when I get out of the ring, there's, you know, that's where we had beepers, and there was a, a beep to the, main front desk and intel at the back uh with number with all ones in front of it so i called them back and i was like what's up and they said uh you're getting promoted to first grade and i thought they were just breaking my chops and i said the orders came down already i said there's no way they're promoting three guys on the same team and i said the orders came down already and i didn't know i was put in for it and uh they said no it came down a telephone message so uh it was, it was really great because the three of us got promoted together. So it was a lot of fun. Got a lot of pictures with the three of us. And it was a, it was an honor to, to, you know, to retire at that rank. You know, folks, for, uh, for those outside of uh, New York that don't, when we talk about first grade detective, second grade detective, uh, third grade detective, first grade detective uh, is the highest uh, ranking detective rank on the job. Uh, but to put it in, in more interesting terms, a, a first grade detective makes lieutenants pay and unlike most lieutenants a first grade uh detective can make lots of overtime so it's a much better rank actually to have uh, uh <laughs> an investigator of the first grade because they can you know they, they can make crazy amounts of overtime because especially if you're in homicide or a unit like he's talking about intel where they let you run with the cases they let you get that investigative overtime so it's uh, when we talk about first grade, second grade, that's what we're talking about. Because I remember one time I said, oh, he's a second grade detective. And, and someone thought I was making a disparaging remark. No, second grade is a rank that, you know, second grade detective on NYPD makes sergeants pay. So 
that's I just want to explain that for you folks in the chat. Well, you know, I think what you were talking about is you said second grade. Somebody thought you said second rate, which obviously you didn't I think you were right. referring to me. But but I want to make another point about that real quick, because on the police department, if you get promoted to detective, you have to be in an investigative capacity for a certain number of time. And you obviously have to have good uh, uh, reviews. And uh, uh, they give you evaluations every so often. You have to have good evaluations. So that's you get you make get made the director of your third. Then as you do better, you get second, and then you get first. And I want to point out the prestige of first grade, just to give you an idea of how hard it is, how hard you have to work, and what prestige there is in it. If an officer, a patrolman, is killed in the line of duty, they posthumously promote him to first grade detective. And I think that obviously, you know, you're getting killed in the line of duty to get it. So you have to work pretty hard to be on the same, you know, the value. I, I'm just trying to give it a, a value to it. So, uh, Tom, first grade detective, uh, a lot of prestige and uh, a hat tip to you. Well, I want you to go do this quickly and then we'll get back to. Uh... Joe Murray, attorney at law. Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Have you found yourself in a jam? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He literally knows both sides of the fence. His website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. Or you could email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. And you could also catch him on Allegedly Guilty Podcast. A little rusty, what do you, there, but I got it yeah, out. Yeah, what, what do you want from me? That's that's what he's saying there. All right, but he's great attorney, great guy, great friend of the show. Tommy, did you ever box um Joe Murray? Oh, I never did. I never yeah. did. You, he was a heavyweight too. He fought on the PBA boxing team. But there, was, uh, there were two teams. I don't know which one he was on. There were two teams, two different. Oh, okay. It's good that you brought that up, Billy, because Tommy not only solved one of the most infamous corruption cases. Worked on, I don't know if he's, I want to say he solved it by himself. Obviously he worked on it with other people, but he was very, very important to solving that case, the mafia cops. But then in his retirement and while he was active, he was down in Park Hill uh, training uh, uh, kids from, from the inner city uh, to box, keeping them out of trouble, maybe saving uh, a couple of kids from the street, so to speak. And uh, Tom, why don't you give us a little bit about that, what you did? Uh, I mean, that was a great, after I retired, um, you know, and boxing for me was over. They, you know, Patty Russo, who still runs it, uh, Cops and Kids, um, and commend Patty tremendously, and Dave C, who's still the coach of the New York's Fighting Finest. Um, Patty offered me a job with the PAL, working at a Park Hill, um, which still exists today. And I worked with Gary Starks, who's a very famous trainer to this day. Uh, we had a great thing going, the city with the PAL and all the PAL gyms until five years into it, the PAL banned boxing. And uh, I did a little stick with cops and kids for a while, and then I ended up running a few other gyms, and I ended up, the last place I was was with Zab uh, Judas' father, EOL. We had a gym together for quite a few years, and uh, but always stayed close to uh, cops and kids. and always in touch with all those guys. And I still keep in touch with those kids till today. Park Hill was like a home away from home. I miss it. It was great, a great time. We had Mike Tyson down there, Emil Griffith, the world champions that would come down there to spar all the time. It was a great gym. 
still- you, know, you know, Tommy, one of the things that, uh, you know, when they talk about uh, money going to different things uh, in the police department, and I think that's a great thing for the money to go to, to uh, programs for kids, sports programs for kids that, you know, can keep the kids off the street, keep the kids training, keep them trying to stay in shape, keep them having positive role models. And these it's are the things. That the boxing, you know, in those neighborhoods was, was an asset. And why the PAL got rid of it, I'll never know. But Patty was able to keep three. <laughs> I believe there were six or seven at the time. And, you know, we used to have meetings once a week on 12th Street, PAL headquarters. It was, I mean, we got paid peanuts, you know, weren't doing it for the money. But it was a it was a great job. The shows, the tournaments, you know, it, it was just a nice thing. It was all retired cops that were running it, you know. Um, and I, I had a great time. I had a great time. You know, it's amazing too. Even in the three four, they have that um, Michael Busick uh, little league program, baseball program, and some of the kids that have came through that program have become on the NYPD. Some of them are were inspectors. I think one of them is a chief now. And they came up through that baseball program that was named after Michael Busick, who was slain on the streets of the 3-4, I believe, back in 1992. No, I it was earlier than that, Billy. 86. Oh, you're right. It may have been. Right, it was, whole, it was, whole band and Busick were killed on the same day, remember? They were, That's right. They were both, they were both um, had a mass together. OLPH. OLPH. I was there. I was there. OLPH. That's my wife's parish, actually. And uh, they, it's a, it's a most beautiful church in Brooklyn, I think. Uh, one of the most, anyhow. It has the double uh, entranceway staircase, and uh, they had both both uh, wake uh, both funerals were held there. It was just an unbelievable sad day, sad day, but a, a beautiful send off for those two heroes. Absolutely, folks. Thank you so much for um, supporting police off the cuff, real crime stories. I don't know if you guys caught it, but Phil Grimaldi, besides being a uh, a good investigator and a up and coming uh, podcaster, a good co host, is also an Italian cook. <laughs> and we did a little episode on on Philly making some spaghetti sauce. And I had originally just released it to our um, YouTube and our Patreon members, and then Philly actually said, "Hey, why don't you put it out for everybody?" <laughs> After like two two or three weeks, so I put it out there, and it's it's catching on fire right now and people are actually commenting oh i followed all the steps that's a really good sauce <laughs> you want to comment on that philly well i think uh we just threw that together so quick i just went into the cabin i pulled out a few things i threw the, the uh you know the camera with the laptop into my kitchen uh i had an apron on. i don't know if you could tell i had a little apron on and we just winged it but it turned out pretty good tom did you get to watch it today i didn't watch it i got the link okay all right, but I think it it, it it turned out pretty good. I think people liked it. It's a completely different uh, animal compared to what we normally do on Police Off the Cuff. It was short. It was sweet. But uh, it was some of the recipes of, uh, you know, of uh, my wife and my mother's cooking. And uh, I can do it. I really don't. My wife does all the cooking in the house. But I've, I've made sauce before, and I've made meatballs and stuff when I was single. But uh, so I think we're going to try it again. We're going to maybe try some other stuff. Uh, other recipes and uh do, do you have any clip from it to play bill or, or when you know i'd have to have it queued up but all uh, right no, no big deal but i think everybody will look for it and they'll find it maybe we'll link it to, to this episode or whatever and uh it came <laughs> out pretty good i thought it was uh a little bit funny uh a little bit uh ethnic i guess because i was throwing on my brooklyn accent a little bit but uh, <laughs> a little thicker than usual fun 
Real real with Robo says, I like to remind Phil about internet rules. You post it, you make it for the class. One supper, Phil. I like that. <laughs> That's a good, I like that rule. That's good. That's the, good. the next time we're going to, he said he's going to try to uh, do some demonstration on some veal parmesan, veal cutlet parmesan. That could be interesting. Yeah. All the parmesans. I, I love shrimp parmesans, my favorite. And that's not so easy to make. No, it's really not that difficult, Billy. It's almost the same as a veal or chicken parmesan. It's I, I'm going to I'm going to brush up on that just to be sure because I don't really make that so much. But it's not that difficult. It's uh, I think the ingredients of what you put in the breading might be a little bit different I, as opposed to breadcrumb and stuff. I think it's more like in the floury and breadcrumb mix. But we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Well, we're making people in the chat hungry. People are starting to leave. We can't talk about I'm getting food, hungry myself. You know? I didn't. Eat I am too. Uh, I'm talking about this and my mouth's watering. But uh, so, you know, we started out talking about how you guys both grew up in Brooklyn and you took the route that got you off the streets and you both became New York City detectives. And, you know, here you are now. Uh, I don't know what year you came on, Tommy. What year did you come on, Tommy? July 1984. 84. You came on a year before me. And Philly, what year did you come on? Uh, January 82. I was a transit cop and then I rolled over to the NYPD in January of 83. So my career started at 82, actually. Yeah, I came on January 85. So both you hairbags had more time than me. Not not much, but a little more. I love that term, hairbag. You know, it's such a great term. And I think the derivation of that was that they said old-time cops would never buy new uniforms. So it looked like their duty jacket was growing hair because it got so frayed. Yeah, and that's where the name, the name hairbag came from. And also, if you know anything about the police service, we get a thousand dollar check right before Christmas to buy new uniforms. Who's going to use it to buy new uniforms? Right, Everyone right. uses it to buy Christmas presents for their kids, you know. So and another nickname you, for the uniform is being in the bag. So being if in you the have bag. little hairs on the bag, hair bag, you got it right there. That's right. That's right. So, uh, you know, that's one of the reasons you, you wanted to get out of the bag, you know, because you didn't have to buy new uniforms. And also, as the years go by on the police department, you you expand a little bit. <laughs> no one weighs the same uh, as they weighed in the police academy. I was 195 in the police academy. And when I retired, I think I was um, like 210, which isn't, that's not that bad. That's only 15 pounds. But some people expand exponentially, as you guys can attest to. <laughs> Billy, you know what happened to me? When I was in the police academy, I was like a 48-inch chest. I was benching 350 pounds. And my waist was like a, 33, let's say. Now my chest is like a 42 and my weight <laughs> is like a 36. So it went down, you know? <laughs> That's great. <laughs> At 21 to where I am now. So it's, it's. There's, there's the, there's the movie. There's the movie we're going to make right there. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, what's sad about that. You got a few good success stories and you got those other two guys also come from Brooklyn and they were not successful story stories. They were uh, total disasters. What they did, you know. A, a class just graduated um, from the police academy, and I don't know anyone personally, but Marianne DeLugo McGinnis, uh, who came on our show, and uh, she's very open about the fact that her her husband, who was a sergeant, uh, committed suicide, and she is a, a spokesperson for you know suicide prevention, all of that stuff. And her son just graduated from the police academy. I mean, she was so proud. And, you know, I when I look at cops graduating from the police academy right now, I just think about what a difficult road they have ahead of them. And not 
a lot different than us because we I think we had more support. We had more support from the politicians. We had more support from the community. We had more support from from everyone. And today it's a new world with video cameras. Uh, cops have to wear body worn video above their shield. The shit they have to take from the community is like you and I, you, I and Phil. We wouldn't last. We wouldn't uh, last a day. You know, you'd be cracking someone across the face. And uh, you know, we had we had the, the charge all thing, which was disorderly conduct. Doesn't seem like they have that anymore. Because doesn't seem like they have anything anymore. You know? No, the, and they, it, they're not allowed. To, Joe Murray's in the chat. Oh my God, there he is, Joe there Murray. He hello, is Joe Murray. hello all. Joe, it's too late. We already we already plugged your commercial. <laughs> you, you know what, Billy? You're making a point about the things that go on today with the cops, uh, that they get spit on and they have to stand there or they get cursed at and, and they get pushed and, and just so many bad things. It's not in my DNA or your DNA or Tommy's DNA where we came from to allow a person to do that to you. Now you put on the uniform. And when I put that uniform on, I felt like I was representing something more than myself. I was representing my badge, my uniform. So to me, it was like, I couldn't back down. So now they have to back down basically is, is what, what they're being told. And it's just not now a DNA to be, that's why you're saying we wouldn't be able to do it. And I agree with you. It's just, I couldn't do that on the street today. If somebody came in my face the way that they go in these cops face today, I wouldn't be able to back down from, I don't know if I'd wind up in, in, uh, in handcuffs, but I, it's just not my DNA to do it. I, you know, I couldn't do that either. I really couldn't uh, put, put, put up with the, the shit that they're expected to take. Nor should you or anyone, you know, I have a personal space. Everyone has it. You should not have to put up with that. Right, Tom? Once somebody puts their hands on you, it's game over. You know, it's uh, it's wrong. And if they're going to do that to a cop in uniform, then what are they going to do to a civilian? You know, uh, they, they, they just, I mean, it's not, not just the NYPD. It's throughout the country. And it's just sad because, you know, when people need help, who are they calling? 911, you know, and they're making cops second guess themselves. It's going to cost police officers their life. And nobody. Highest knows. murder rate of police officers this year. Highest rate of officers killed in the line of duty this year, Tom. I'm glad you brought that nobody up. Nobody seems to care, you know. No. Nobody really seems to care. And it's really, uh, I mean, you know, like, Law, law and order, you know, like you know, what what are cops supposed to be? You know, it's it just the whole aspect of every time a cop does something, they're getting indicted, they're getting second guessed, they're called racist. They, I mean, you ever want to try to call me racist? You know, I won the Black Achievement Award. You, you know, it's not going to fly, and that's the last thing I ever would be, and nor do I respect people who are. But no matter whether you're green, white, black, purple, brown, if you disrespect me, you put your hands on me, you know, you're going to get a crack in that. It's not It's not a boxing match. You're going to lose. Most right. of those kids you were training down in Park Hill were African-American kids, if I'm correct. Those kids, right? were, the, those kids were the best. You know, those kids were the best. And, All uh, they needed was they needed a helping hand, and you would add helping hand. Not just me. I mean, there was a lot of cops involved in PALs, and, uh, you know, it was great because – Kids from inner city, inner city neighborhoods got to see another side of what they may have been thought was different. And, you know, I love these kids like they were my sons. And they were great. They were great kids. And they still are. They're still down there, you know. 
But, you know, guys, we have uh, Jimmy Calandra uh, from a Bath Avenue stories in the chat. Sending my love to all you guys. Wishing you all a blessed new year to come. 2022, Tommy Dades is my guy. Woo, Tommy Dades is the man, you know. The That's best. another person he gave a helping hand to. You know, I I, I think that uh, Jimmy Calandra's looking for a part in the movie, too. <laughs> Cross-pollination. Yeah, we're, we're all trying to get a part in this movie that hasn't been made yet. You know, people have called me. They're like, oh. You think Tommy Dades would talk to me? Uh, I, I know someone might. I, no, no, I don't think he, you know. We want to hear uh, Metro Goldwyn Mayer or, or uh, Netflix. We want to hear HBO. I'm not listening, looking to hear some, you know, investigation discovery, even though that's where Phil and I got our start, right? Yeah, that was, uh, that was actually, uh, I do really owe a big thank you to uh, Ricky Torelli and um kevin kaufman kevin kaufman from the perfect murder and i i was going to sum up tomorrow night for our last show with you yeah i'll I'll save that for tomorrow because okay. i'm going to take a couple of uh couple of little thank yous tomorrow night because it's going to be our last show with a year and uh i'll leave it at that we'll get into that tomorrow but yeah that's where we met that was a great great experience that's how i met uh my partner here, Bill. Jim, Jimmy Calandra wants to play Tommy Dades. I don't know. Does he have the swagger? Does he got that Tommy? I'm just kidding. I think that's great. Yeah, uh, folks, tomorrow night, uh, Phil and I are doing our um, last show of the year, and we're going to touch upon uh, four of the biggest cases that we uh, presented over the past year. One, of course, Summer Wells. There's nothing new we're going to report. We're just going to recap it. Uh, of course, Gabby Petito and Brian Laundry, the case that uh, caught international attention, which was, you know, of course, a tragic end for both of them, uh, which also brings up domestic violence. The other thing was the Murdoch case from Beaufort, South Carolina, which is that could be a TV series, that case. It will right? be. I'm sure it will be. And then finally, uh, the the Alec Baldwin case, which is probably just a big case because uh he's such a blowhard that guy i've never seen a person that's more hated you know and, and you know think everyone wants to say i think preliminarily they would think of that as an accident but here's this guy that was so judgmental on everyone else and now it's his turn to have people be judgmental on him you know walk in their shoes and now karma comes back it always does yeah and in 2017 he made a comment about a Los Angeles cop that was in a shooting. And he said, I wonder what it's like to wrongfully kill someone. And that cop was cleared and his, the, the shooting was ruled justifiable. Now I'd like to ask Alec Baldwin, I wonder what it feels like to, uh, you know, unjustified. actors and they act in movies. What gives them the right to, to like, use that to, to judge people that they have no... It's, it's a platform. It's a false platform, yeah. I that mean, they have. You know, give me a break. You know, he's a fucking moron. <laughs> you know what? Karma is a bitch. And the unfortunate thing is that two people were shot. One young lady that was really looked like such a beautiful person was killed with a little boy and a husband. So, uh, very I, sad. I, I, yeah, it's very sad. And, and it was all due. We'll get into it tomorrow. But it was all due to reckless, reckless behavior and uh, just plain old, uh, you know, they were just inept. They were, it was stupid. It was real stupid. It's Joe, Joe, Joe Murray wants to get his his, his last licks in. Uh, thanks for the $5 super chat. Brian Laundry is only allegedly oh, guilty. 
And Mr. Bertolino has a perfect record. He had three clients and zero indicted for anything related to murder, except his client's dead. Fuzzy Doxy, thank you so much, and thank you for appreciating. Thanks for the 999 Super Chat. Joe, you haven't had a chance to, to jump in our chat lately, but the, the, the Lord, that guy, he took a beating. That guy Bertolino took a beating by the, uh, uh, what's her name, the news reporter from News Nation, uh, Ashley Banfield, gave him a beating on TV. <laughs> And Joe will disagree with that, but she definitely got the better of him. I think he was he was dribbling on himself. He didn't know what to say. I'm sure facts are going to dribble out over time on what the FBI and or other law enforcement developed with regard to uh, evidence that would tie Brian directly to uh, the murder of Gabby Petito. I, I have a strong suspicion there may have been a note in that uh, when he was recovered uh, after his suicide, because they made, they label it a suicide so quickly. The gun may have been recovered. There may have been a note and maybe he wrote about, uh, you know, being sorry that he accidentally killed her. There's so much to talk about with that case, but Joe, I appreciate the banter. And I, I know that that's, your, uh, that's <laughs> we your have it, position, we... <laughs> but uh, I think there's just, there's too much, pointing in the, in the direction of uh, Brian, but we'll get into it sometime and uh, we'll discuss it. And we're going to go over it tomorrow night. RDNAC, if you go on News Nation and you search their, uh, their um, they, on YouTube, you search Ashley Benfield and Steve Bertolino, who was yeah. Brian Laundrie's attorney. I'm sure you can pull up. She took him to school. That episode. School. Oh, she totally took him to school. And I think he was wishing he was back in law school or back on law, you know, here he is representing people, and he's not—he's thousands of miles away. He never wound, he never bothered to go to Florida. He's representing them from, uh, you know, live chat. I guess I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that—that that was uh, not a good look on his part. I don't think he was uh, up for the challenge of being on uh, an interview like that—a live interview. Uh, listen, it is what it is. He—he he probably didn't serve his clients well because I think that. Uh, you know, look at the result with Brian Laundry. Even if he did kill Gabby Petito, uh, he could have, you know, he could have been in jail and still been alive, or he, maybe he would have been acquitted. God only knows. But uh, I think that they uh, they allowed that kid to be placed in a position where he was able to kill himself and take his own life. I'm not blaming anybody. I don't think it was done directly or with intent, but uh, it is what it is. And I think that's why uh, he looks so bad in, in the media too. You know, absolutely. Andy the Gabby Cabby, thank you, buddy, oh. for uh, joining us in the chat. Thank you for all your support of Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. And thanks for all you do on your own podcast. You're a hell of a podcaster, great communicator, and uh, you got a, a good heart for all the people that uh, join us in the chat, all the the family that we have in these uh, this YouTube community. Thank you for the well wishes, Andy, too. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Everybody, all the subscribers. I know I got a lot of uh, people shouting out to to feel good and all of that. And prayers, thank you so much. It uh, means a lot to me. really does. You know, I think that the next time we do a culinary show, though, Phil should be wearing a chef's hat, at least a, a, one of those tall you, to wear, <laughs> you really want me to mess my hair? Come on. Yeah, yeah. Oh, He's going to have to mess his hair up. He's going to have to wear one of those chef's hats, you know? Let me see what I could do. Let me see. Uh, come on. He's got family in the business. He can get one of those hats, I think, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so guys we're at uh we're at an hour and like uh, seven minutes and we this is when we usually like to just uh give our last thoughts uh you know this is our second to last show tomorrow night show will be our last show of 2021 it's been a, 
it's been an eventful <laughs> year. It's been it's been stressful a little Sorry. bit. I know that a lot of you guys, and not that I'm expecting you to shed any tears for us, but this is a tough. It's tough keeping a YouTube channel. It's not easy as everyone thinks. Like you just go on the air. There's not a million phone calls made. There's not a million uh, hours you spend on the computer try to set it up. Uh, there's a lot of work to it. And I want to thank all you guys. Of course, cheated no more. Thank you for the five dollars super chat. Uh, glad to make it to the chat. The channel's going great. Happy New Year's to everyone. We're hoping we blow up big time in 2022. And I want to. I'm going to be along for the ride. And so is Phil Grimaldi. And hopefully, Tommy Dades will join us a bunch more times because I think he's a uh, a great guest. And he's got a great story to tell. Tommy, uh, final words? Uh, I had a great time this year with you guys. It was a lot of fun with all the different guests that you had me on with, with you two. Uh, your show is really, it is blowing up. It's, you always have interesting people on, great topics. You know, uh, as a retired cop, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a pleasure to watch it. And I just want to wish everybody a safe, happy, and healthy New Year. And... Uh, all the guys out there that are working nationwide, you know, God bless, be safe, be careful, and uh, stay out of harm's way. Absolutely. Philly, last words? Last words. Tommy, thank you so much for coming on. I pointed out that you're a modest guy. Look at the way he wrote his name that's on the screen. I put Detective Phil Grimaldi. Uh, Bill puts retired sergeant. He just puts Tommy Dades. He's a first-grade detective. He's a modest guy, I'm telling you. And I always say this. You're the only guy I know that was interviewed on 60 Minutes. Thank mm-hmm. you so much for coming on. He doesn't realize all the great accomplishments. I got to point it out from, I'm not trying to kiss your ass, Tommy. I'm just saying the truth, you know, about the boxing, all the great things you did. And look, Jimmy Calandra, there's a guy that you helped turn his life around. Look at the success he's got with his podcast. We with him. One last thing, just everybody, this Omicron variant, I, I talked about it. My whole family had it. Everybody around me had it. Thank God we're okay. Uh, stay strong out there. Take away your mask. Uh, take your uh, vitamin D and your zinc and all of that stuff and uh, just try to stay healthy. The doctors assured me that it was just going to be the Omicron is mild. It doesn't look like it's going to put people in hospital so much. If you have the uh, the shot, even better. So, uh, And I'm very looking forward to tomorrow night's show. We're going to recap a lot of what we did. We're going to talk about stuff that's to come. we got a lot of great ideas on tap. We're working on a lot of great guests, and it's going to be good. 21 was good for police off the cuff. And 22 is going to be better. That's great. Well said, Phil. And folks, again, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't thank all you guys for making this channel what it is. And uh, we love bringing these stories to you. And as uh, Phil was talking about, we're going to try to get some great, great guests for 2022. And uh, that's one of the things that I ad nauseum talk about this is that I love so much about doing this show is the great people that I get to meet. Unbelievable. Yep. So having said that, guys, good night, and thank you so much for joining us. Stay safe, everybody. One episode, just ain't enough.